It doesn't matter if you love crafts, blackjack, machines, or dining on the finest Asian, American, and Salish cuisines. It doesn't matter what you do or where you're coming from. Muckleshoot. What you do is all at Muckleshoot. An easy drive from wherever you are. All roads lead to Muckleshoot. Striking the front, Muncie's on the outside. Exclusive speakers on the grandstand side. Not home yet is Lucky Lad. Lucky Lad, exclusive speaker on the outside. And Muncie, exclusive speaker, a come from behind win. You're listening to another edition of Horse Racing Northwest from Emerald Downs as we are in the month of July, 2023. Plenty to talk about over the course of the season to date and this week. Joe Withy, Vince Brune, Bill Downs here on Horse Racing Northwest. And we just heard the audio at the top of the show. Exclusive speaker, one of the top stories at Emerald Downs here in 2023. He is two for two at the meeting. And, fellas, uh, that's an impressive horse so far. Bill? Yeah, he set the record miles 70 yards, and he did it mostly on the front end. And, 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 and last weekend's race, it was from off of the pace, and that shows versatility, obviously. And that's a way to find your way to the winner's circle a few more times because you're not uh, just uh, pigeonholed into you know needing the lead or needing a, a certain pace scenario. You can do it from on the front end or from off the pace. Yeah, indeed. He's got, uh, what, eight career victories now and five in 2023, five of his eight for the six-year-old son of Mr. Speaker. And Vince, uh, he is uh, certainly one to take note of there for trainer George Rosales. Yeah, and watching that race, they come down the lane. I'm thinking, oh, Muncie's he's yeah. finally going to get oh. that win. And then I look outside, because he was firing as usual, and then I look outside of him, and here comes exclusive Speaker over the top of them all and like bill said that was a kind of a change in strategy for that horse and that was only what six days after he set the track record to wheel right back like that and uh he got an 82 buyer which topped his previous one which was a 78 for those of you who follow those so yes very sharp horse and reading uh your wrap up every night muncie had another big effort at at high odds that's three straight now 14 to 1, 15 to 1, and 17 Jeez. to 1. Yeah. So he's got a win on a win coming up here somewhere soon. He's he's trying really hard and he's outperforming his odds. He just keeps running into buzz saws. Okay. So that was not a stake, but who knows? Exclusive speaker might be headed that way uh, down the road here at Emerald Downs. Chris Larmy's going to join us. Chris is one of the outstanding handicappers in North America. He's been a tournament handicapper for. Uh, over 20 years. He's very well known nationally. Bill, you've been at the uh, NHC many times yourself. And Chris, of course, is, you know, if there were a, a favorite listed, he'd probably be in the top 10 most years. Yeah, a couple things about uh, Chris. Chris, uh, I went to go play a contest at Hawthorne after our, our racing season last year. Uh, Hawthorne Invitational and Chris won that contest that I was uh, that I was in and then uh, Chris and I um, co-host a, a webcast on YouTube uh, for a couple of online handicapping uh, contests that are sponsored by horsetourneys.com I play the role of uh, you know kind of the host if you will but also handicap and then Chris is the analyst and we kind of do it from our homes and it gets, it's nicely produced, I will say that. Um, we would do the uh, third event, but uh, uh, it's during the Emerald Downs racing season, and I can't do it really on the Saturday, which is the more important of the two-day contest, if you will. So we don't do it for the, the third event, but uh, we've been done in the last couple of years, and so I've gotten to at least know Chris a little bit uh, through that uh, that uh, event or those Gold, events. You nope. know. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, uh, guys watching uh, just on social media, Chris Larmy is a friend of the horse player. Yes, and, oh, uh, for sure. He's kind of a benevolent watchdog over uh, things that affect horse players, and he's got very poignant and very good 
sensible, logical observations on a lot of things that go on. And uh, boy, uh, he's also a superior handicapper. And uh, has he ever hit a fifteen to one shot? You bet. And uh, <laughs> he, but he, he, he's not just throwing darts either. He's got well reasoned uh, handicapping skills he uses to uncover those uh, gems. And he also plays. You know, he doesn't. He's just not a contest player. There's some out there who just play contests. He's also betting, betting plenty as well. So he he does kind of does it all. He's he's a good person to talk to. He was instrumental in getting the uh, the uh, signer bill that uh, created you know less than uh, three hundred one bill, for yeah. every. Oh yeah, now now the total ticket goes into the. The uh, figuring of when you have a signer and when you don't, other than just every 300 to 1 for every bet. So uh, that has just saved horse players zillions over the past, what, about eight years now? Something like that. It's been that long, yeah. It -hmm. might be. Okay, Chris is going to join us in segment two. Uh, Racing at Emerald Downs this week, we have three different post times, so take note of that. Friday night, 7 p.m., Saturday at 5 p.m. now. We're going to be going at at 5 p.m. on Saturdays for the next several weeks. The Kenny Dales, some live music after the races up on the fifth floor. If you come to the track, you are already in the music. If not, you can get your tickets at emeralddowns.com. Live music after racing on Saturday night. And then Sunday, our regular time of 2 p.m. on Sundays. We've got a stakes double header this weekend. Two-year-olds in action, uh, I'm going to guess that there's a few first-time starters involved in these stakes, Vince. Yeah, uh, we haven't gotten to those races yet, but yeah, you are absolutely right. There is uh, Those fields drew really well, too. Because we've only had, uh, I think, three two-year-old races so far. Yeah, the the King County Express, which goes as rate eight, race eight, drew a field of nine. And the Angie C Stakes, which is for the Phillies, drew a field of seven, both of those at five and a half furlongs on Sunday. The Angie C goes as race six. The King County Express goes as race eight. Just uh, as we were talking before we uh, started today, this is, in my opinion, probably the best card we've seen so far at Emerald Downs uh, this year. A lot of depth, top and bottom, 10 races Just looking at race nine, you've got a a field of 11 older horses in allowance optional claimer going six and a half furlongs. And, you know, you figured it'd probably take a lot to get uh, Kevin Radke off tax code at this point, the way that horse has been running. But he shows up on Brady Boy Hmm. and Alex Cruz goes on tax code. And that is, you know, horses like 911 for Robbie Gilker, who we saw was really good here last year. Um. Yo Galante uh, up for Frank Lucarelli. You got You're the Cause, who won the Derby here last year. Uh, Seville Rowe just won at Santa Anita up for uh, hmm. Justin Evans. So it goes on and on, but that's an outstanding race. And the uh, first race is a good mile race for older claimers. Outstanding race seven for older fillies and mares. You got Miss Parkside going for a hat trick against Frisco Frills, You Go Girl, and that bunch are Lila Grace. So it's a great card, top to bottom. Boy, that is. That's a great start to Sunday's racing, 2 p.m. post time. It's a family fun weekend at Emerald Downs, so uh, another good time for the kids and the families. Um, We'll have events out in the park, and we're going to have another kids race. The kids get to run on the track, and let's hopefully... Hope they don't go a mile and three eighths like they did. <laughs> last Our promotions time. man, ago. Gary Doherty, <laughs> make sure the kids don't end up at the six furlong marker, please. Yeah. yeah. So we don't need the outrider back on the back stretch. We, we don't need our up. insurance premiums going up, up, <laughs> up. We thank we, you, Gary. Yeah, we get uh, various uh, living things out there on that track. This time it's going to be kids. So take advantage of that uh, ice cream for the kids after the race is over. So that, only if they don't run at the six furlong mark. Yeah, yeah, there you go. All right. Uh, and last week's honors, Vince. Okay, yeah. Uh, for July 1st through 3rd, our jockey, this is an interesting one, Neptali Ortiz. Anyone who was here last Saturday night saw a natural hat trick. Yeah. And, you know, this guy previously in North America had ridden in Canada, Western Canada, five or six years ago. But I understand he'd been riding in Venezuela most recently. He's obviously got some polish from somewhere. 
You know, he came down the middle of the racetrack, two straight races there for Luciano Medina Gabriel, and those horses were full of runs. So Neptali doing a great job. Our Las Margaritas trainer of the week, M.L. Pierce. He had a couple wins. He's been supporting us pretty good the last couple years. Our owner is Luciano Medina Gabriel. He also could have won trainer. He had three wins as an owner trainer, so great week for him. Uh, our Washington bread goes to Shelby Gold. Won the uh, Saturday feature race, Eric Jensen, the breeder there. And our quarter shoot cafe groom goes to Lane Marquez from the Justin Evans Powerhouse uh, Outfit. Honorary mentions last week, Joe Toy had a nice week with a couple winners. Frank Lucarelli, another big week, three winners. Alex Anaya uh, mm-hmm. got rolling with a couple wins, including a feature race win on Jin Tong. Yeah, very good. And... Uh, I'll probably go over Justin Evans' stats next week, but he's got a shot to break the single season record here. He's got so many. He's got so many chances on Saturday. I, I would almost yeah. set up the over oh, really? under at uh, at least two and a half, and if not, you could very easily go over that number. Yeah, uh, significantly. He's got horses all over the place. You know, on, and on what Saturday. I mentioned, uh, like uh, Seville Row coming in for that uh, nice uh, allowance race. On he rotates his stock like most of these big time guys do he's always bringing in new horses replenishing supply keeping them fresh and the stat that really jumps out at me 29 wins in only eight seconds so that's 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 pretty powerful when his horses are coming down the lane in contention they're getting the money and just following up on on what he's got it on saturday i think he'll have the favorite horse in races four five six and seven and he might the eighth race is uh uh, he might have it in the eighth race as well. It's probably the one that, uh, what did you, did you remember this one, Vince, Gold Rush Candy in the eighth race at all? Or, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah. No, probably. Yeah. So when in doubt, I do. Rousing Rebels in the race. So yeah, I'd, I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, so he might have the favorites at races four, five, six, seven, and eight on Saturday. Oh, there's some good races Saturday as well. Okay, yeah, Justin Evans, 29 wins through the first uh, 22 days of the meet. And uh, the record here at Emerald Downs is 66, set by Jeff Metz a few years back. Yeah, and, uh, well, no, it was Frank Lucarelli. And remember in the... Luke had the 66. No, Luke had uh, 82, I believe it was. Dang! and uh because jeff had the previous remember that i know can you edit that out i don't want to look that bad but uh (laughs) you remember it now it was 2019 i believe and and he he won that one he won the first five on a card one day and uh yeah so christensen set the record for owner i hope frank's not listening joe he's gonna he's gonna scold you for that i'll make sure and get that in his (laughs) hall of fame copy that's for sure Okay, 82 wins. Well, that's going to be a little tough for for Justin Evans. But, but you uh, know, he's on a win, a, over a win a day yeah. pace, like a win and a third per day, which is awesome. He's got about 12 in this weekend. Yeah. Okay, uh, so news and notes up at emeralddowns.com. They are, yeah. They went up today. Good. And uh, one other milestone we've been following, Blaine Wright, still at 998. He had a couple real close calls here last Saturday with Purple Knight and Reservoir. Just looking at Pleasant, he's got a lot of action down there and a lot of action here. So I think he's about to hit a nice milestone this weekend. What does he got Friday at Pleasant, you know? I can't remember. Um, I think he's got at least three horses in, and uh, I think he's got a couple uh, two-year-olds in down there on Saturday, too. Right, right, right. He's got a... a pretty busy race card here, too, this weekend. So I'm just trying to make a mental note. Yeah. For Friday night, he's got that one horse that one in the sixth race or something so okay yeah well, he gotta he, keep these things uh, keep these things in order yeah like me okay um <laughs> hey our uh where are they now this week is rooster city who uh he had an excellent career he ran against a lot of top horses here at emerald downs uh 2008 9 10 and ventured to california and he's back with his original owner so that will be, of course, we play our Where Are They Now video uh, before the first race every day, and it goes on YouTube, Emerald Downs YouTube page. Um, hey, most impressive winner last week. Did we go over that? Uh, exclusive speaker was certainly one of them. Bill, you got any other add-ons? No, it wasn't the highest buyer speed figure of, of the week, but on, um, what was it, Monday, July 3rd, the sixth race, uh, Philly and Mayor, $5,000 claiming race. I liked the, how a slice of pie 
uh, one for dominated. Yeah. Yeah. For Lucarelli uh, in that race uh, set right off of the pace. Now, granted uh, there was a, a it, it, to me, it was it was a, a race that was loaded from top to bottom. Um, and it was one of the races that uh, the Emerald Racing Club was in with Warren's memorable, um, who finished sixth in that race. But you look down the, the, the line, Slice of Pie, Seven Sisters, who's a rock solid at the $5,000 level. Mo Conley came into the race off of two yeah. wins. Some of the Samurai uh, showed some signs of life in the race. Willing to Burn was off the long layoff. He won some races last year. Just thought there was a very strong $5,000 claiming race, and Slice of Pie uh, did it the right way winning by almost four lengths. And so I decided to make that one the, my most quote-unquote impressive you know, of the I week. I could follow up on that real quick. And, and one of the things I try to teach to racing club members are the conditions of a race. And it's one of the difficult things to learn here. And they ask good questions. And one of them was, well, Warren's memorable just won for 8000 Then why is she, why is she such a big price for 5000 mm-hmm. And and which she was, and I explained, well, you know, the 8,000 was a non-winners of three lifetime. Now she's going against horses that have won seven, eight, nine, six times. These are tough old pros. And uh, it's it's uh, one of the things I love about racing, the little nuances like that, but it's sometimes the uh, new people struggle to pick up on something like that. And just talking to our jockey afterwards, he said, Warren's Mary, she was trying. She just couldn't keep up with those horses. That's all. And the other thing, now you're bringing that up. Another thing is, is sometimes, you know, you get uh, uh, three-year-olds against at this time of year, only going up against three-year-olds. And then when they go up against olders, it's much tougher. They might be in for eight, but uh, they're now in for five. And they went from a three-year-old race for eight now into an older race for five. And it's like, yeah, people don't want understand that either, but th- that's something you got to take a look at handicapping wise. But yeah, these five thousand and on the male side too, these five claimers here, open ones are really tough. Withy found that out going up against older horses the other night. It was a little tough there. Who was coming off a maiden win? So he had a couple of things going. First race against winners and going long. Yeah, I thought In the Red was really impressive yeah. on, uh, was that Sunday? Yeah, or no, Monday. Monday night feature, yeah. yeah. Mike Pierce and Mike Pierce, really yeah. nice race. He had Girl. the one hole and, you know, he took took advantage of it with a good start. Tro- uh, drop in class, stretch yeah. back out in distance. Uh, Hollywood Mistress got claimed out of that race, who finished second, and I think that went to Blaine Wright. So I'm kind of interested in seeing her run back. Um, if you mentioned that race in the red and Hollywood mistress. Yeah. In the red, uh, ran awful well for a win on dirt, you know, former, mostly a turf horse, but he had shown some, some good races around two turns. And anyway, good congratulations to Mike Pierce, who is our trainer of the week. Correct. Okay. All right. We're going to take a short time out and come back with Chris Larmy, our guest on this week's horse racing Northwest. It doesn't matter if you love craps, blackjack, machines, or dining on the finest Asian, American, and Salish cuisines. It doesn't matter what you do or where you're coming from. Muckleshoot. What you do is all at Muckleshoot. An easy drive from wherever you are. All roads lead to Muckleshoot. Muckleshoot. Horse Racing Northwest continues, and our guest is Chris Larmy, a Washingtonian who is one of the top tournament handicappers and just general handicappers in thoroughbred racing. Chris is well-known, and uh, he's been on our podcast and our Win Play show before. If you've attended Emerald Downs, you've seen him out here at the track. Chris, great to have you on. I. Thanks for inviting me on. Really looking forward to the chat and really looking forward to being at Emerald Downs tomorrow. Yeah, I think it's been since before COVID you've been out here. Yeah, it's my first post-COVID <laughs> trip. Yeah, so really looking forward to it. Okay, well, it's me and Vince Brune and uh, Bill Downs here on Horse Racing Northwest, and you know all of us guys pretty well. And uh, just uh, what's how's the year going for you so far, Chris? Oh, it's great. Um, you know, I, uh, healthy family's doing well. Uh, you know, racing's been fun. I started 
I've, I've had one podcast going for a while, and I started a new one that's, that's a lot of fun. Um, that's getting some good feedback. So I've been busy, but having lots of fun. Yeah, we want to talk about your podcasts and promote those. Uh, you've been with Scott Carson for several years now on the Sport of Kings, where you guys cover uh, generally one track that has a really big day upcoming and a lot of great races and, and a guest there. Um, and you're still doing Sport of Kings? Yes, we are. Uh, just finished recording earlier today. We covered the cross-country pick five, with which has uh, races from Belmont and Horseshoe, Indiana, including the Indiana Derby and the Belmont Derby. So fun card, fun discussion. We usually cover five races, like you said, from you know either one of the you know the big racing days at a track, or in this case, across a couple. Yeah, Sport of Kings. Check that out. Uh, just great insight. Um, Chris and Scott have, uh, you know, just uh, outstanding insight into handicapping. And Chris being a tournament player, looking for a price now and then, which I certainly uh, like that part of your angle. And uh, your new podcast is quite the venture. Um, I've already listened to a couple, and uh, I'll make a comment on some of your guests. Uh, uh, Chris is hearing these guys betting you know, a thousand or five thousand to win on a four to five shot, and he's he's probably just cringing inside, but he's <laughs> but he's being uh, because he's a price player. But tell us about your new podcast uh, when it comes out uh, and some of the highlights so far. Yeah, uh, I've been thinking about this for a while. It just took me a, a while to finally do it. But you know, there's a lot of information and discussion about handicapping and picking winners which is really important in the game. It's fun. And, you know, it's important if you want to try to make money to be able to handicap and pick winners. But just as important is how you bet those horses. You know, it's not just picking winners. It's how you bet them, especially, you know, when you get beyond, say, a win bet and you start getting into an exotic wagers, especially things like superfectas and pick fives and pick sixes. So, you know, betting is really important, but it tends to be undervalued. And you always hear, at least I've always heard, the lament that um, I'm a good handicapper, but I'm a lousy better. Yeah. So I just never seem to be able to cash my opinion. Yeah, that, and, that comes up all the time. Excuse me. No, and so I really wanted to create some content to, to address that so people can learn not only, you know, they, they can get the handicapping somewhere else, and that's kind of what we focus on, Sport of Kings, but, you know, the betting side of the game and how you become a successful horse player. And the, what I've tried to do is bring in, you know, people that have been successful for a long time and get them to tell us their story and how they evolved as a horse player and, and what their secrets are, or at least maybe not the secrets, but what they think are important you know, attributes for being successful. And, um, you know, it's just a conversation. I do very little talking. Like you said, you, you've listened to one, Joe, um, at least one. You know, I just let them roll. I, I kind of feed them a few questions. But these guys are really sharp, and they, and they really want to share um, what they've learned. Most of them have been doing it for a long time and want to give something back. And, you know, it's just to me it's – if you're really serious about this game and want to learn, I mean, how could you not want to hear from these top players, yeah. you know, how they've been successful? I mean, we're talking about guys like Andy Beyer and um, uh, uh, Mike Maloney and guys that have written books and, you know, made a living um, betting horses all their life. And other people you might not have heard of because they're not, the type that want to write books or, or be in the public eye, but they're just as smart and just as, as successful. And I've gotten really good feedback. Um, uh, people seem to really like it, and they're learning a lot from it. I constantly hear people saying, you know, um, I, I changed the whole way I bet now, and I've become much hmm. more successful. And that's exactly, you know, the feedback I wanted to get. That, that's why I did the show. Sure. So, and uh, just one a lot of comment fun. on there, Bill. Uh um, and, you know, you mentioned Andy Beyer, who everybody knows, but some of these other people that their name might not be, you know, super recognizable. As you listen to them for five minutes and you know that they put a lot of thought into what they do and, and why they're successful. Chris, 
what have you learned from talking to all these these people? Give me one or two things that you you, you surprised you, if you will, and what what changes have you made to your wagering and handicapping? Well, that's a good question, and that's the other real reason I did that is because you know I want to learn I want to learn from these guys as well. I mean, and I've learned a lot. I'll tell you the one thing that I think was the biggest lesson I've gotten out of it. First of all, there's a lot of different ways to win at this game. And, and Joe kind of hinted at that. You know, these guys, um, some of them tend to focus on, you know, like uh, chalkier, um, low-variance plays, and some are more aggressive. But um, what I kind of learned was I, have, I love the handicap. And like Joe said, I look for prices, and I try to come up with clever opinions that um, most people I you know wouldn't come up with. That that's what I enjoy doing. But you know, one of the things I I've learned is that you don't necessarily have to have that super sharp, fancy opinion. That's you know, the clever thing that people haven't come up with to make money betting on a race. I mean, sometimes it's as simple as there's just a really bad favorite. And you can toss that favorite. You don't have to get real cute after that. You know, you, if you bet in an efficient, uh, intelligent way, you can cash in on that opinion without, you know, having to come up with that clever 10 or 10 to 1 shot that most people aren't going to come up with. Now, that's probably what I've learned is I, I maybe don't have to always have a clever opinion and think about ways that I can make money on a race even without that clever opinion. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's a great learning experience, and yeah, you're you're uh, picking the brain of all these top handicappers. So, bet with the best is the name of Chris's uh, podcast. Who's been your most recent guest? Uh, Andy Byer is no. the one I just uh, talked to a few days ago. Good. Um, not surprisingly, pretty entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely had at you know he talks about. The run he had when he was using his buyer figures, you know, when they were just his own uh, private use, and uh, the feeling that he had when he could go to the track knowing that he had a better understanding of who the fastest horse was than probably anybody else at the track and how he cashed in on that over a long period of time. Um, You know, of course, now his buyer figures are in the DRF, so... You don't get a big advantage by knowing who's the fastest horse um, according to the buyer figures like he used to, but there was a time when he was doing them just for his own use, and um, you know that's how he got a big edge and how he cashed in over a long period of time. So that was fun. You know, I, uh, Chris, I just reread recently one of Buyer's books, uh, my fifth, first 50,000 year at the racetrack in 78, and there was a time when he would go to the racetracks in uh, Maryland and Pimlico there was one meet where the inside was so golden it it everything else was insignificant the horse that got the lead inside was going to win the race the majority of the time and what struck Andy about it was that no one else seemed to catch on to it back then now I think something like that would be much more noticeable yeah absolutely and um that's one of the kind of, you know, Bill had asked about the other things. One of the common themes throughout is that you have to continually evolve and find new edges because even if you're out on the leading edge, others are going to catch up and eventually the buyer figures or track biases or watching, you know, trips, all those things, you'll lose value and you won't be able to get the same sort of edge you got when you were kind of out in front of people. So that's why you have to continually learn and change over time or um, you'll get passed up. And, you know, they, that's a common theme um, throughout with all the guests. They talk about that. Chris, how many tracks do you normally take a look at on the weekends? Do you Are you, uh, you know, two or three, four or five? And then what edges do you use? I mean, are you a, a trip handicapper, your speed figures, uh you know what 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 goes into your handicapping uh methods and how many tracks do you uh like to take a look at i um i'll look at maybe six or eight tracks i don't play all the races but i'll scan through that and see if anything catches my attention and kind of move from there um 
because we do the Sport of Kings podcast, I'm always doing whatever big card happens to be on that weekend. So at a minimum, you know, I'll start there. But there, you know, I I try to to be uh, flexible. And my approach is I'm kind of a generalist. I don't specialize in things. But, you know, one of the things that I have always had a good understanding of was just sort of how horses form cycles both long-term and in terms of how horses develop as they get older and near-term how they get fitter with racing and and workouts. So I'm really looking for horses that I think are going to improve off of their recent races, either because they've matured physically, you know, from a two-year-old to a three-year-old or a three-year-old to a four-year-old, or because they've gained fitness through, um, you know, recent racing. Um, So I'm always trying to project horses that I think are sitting on a big improvement um, relative to recent races or maybe even the best race of their life. Now, that's what I'm probably the best at doing is finding those kinds of horses um, and, you know, betting what kind of projecting improvement in races where they need to improve to win, but because of that, you get a price. That That's probably the, the thing I specialize on. And, and if you listen to the Sport of Kings podcast, you'll hear me talk about this all the time. Um, I'm hoping some of the listeners have learned a little bit about that. I talk about things like the golden pattern, um, which I think is the most powerful angle in racing about, that most likely kinds of horses to run those big best of their life races. So, you know, that's kind of what I'm looking for all the time. But I, you know, I, I look at everything. I'm kind of a generalist, so um pretty flexible in that regard. Yeah. I think you have to be if you're looking for a price and, and uh, were you a price player before you became kind of a well-known tournament player, Chris, or did uh, those two things kind of coincide? Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I'm a price player. I'd say I'm a value player. And by value, I mean I'm looking for horses whose odds are higher than I think they should be. So that if I can find those horses and 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 on a regular basis and bet them, I can make a long-term profit. Sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. But it's like you know, I I want to make a bet that I think I have an edge. And so typically that's horses that are higher priced because the favorites it's pretty much you know the value it's kind of everything about them is well known that's why they're the favorite and it's sort of baked into the price it's hard to find you know a four to five shot that really has a better than a four to five chance of winning i there are players that are pretty good at doing that that they're real picky about it and and they and when they find one they like they hammer it but that's not my strength um, I'm better at finding those horses at a higher at a, at a little higher price that I think are are being under bet. So I'm trying to zig when others zag, and just it happens to be, you know, those horses tend to be the ones that are higher priced, not crazy long shots, um, but you know, just horses that are more in the you know six to ten to one range. That's kind of my sweet spot. But I, you know, I won't hesitate to play higher horses at higher prices. And sometimes horses at lower prices, if, if I think, you know, they still offer value. But I think that's the key message that comes out, again, in the Bet with the Best podcast is you can't win long term unless you have an edge. And you, if you can't find an edge, then, you know, you really shouldn't be betting if, you're, if your objective is to win money long term. If you're just having fun and you want to bet just to make it a little more enjoyable, that's a different situation but if you're really trying to turn a profit you've got to be able to find value in some way a through your handicapping and b in terms of the way you bet to leverage your opinion so you can maximize the return yeah chris uh, um i especially during the off season we have a little more time i i, I like you are looking for price or as you put it value but when you play that way, you can go in some prolonged uh, dry periods. At least I know I can. Maybe uh, it's unavoidable. But do you ever find yourself in one of those periods and you start questioning yourself? I mean, because when you're wagering, it can play with your mind a little bit if things aren't going well. And that's another part, I think, of being successful is being able to uh, stay confident even when, uh, when things aren't rolling so good. 
Absolutely. That's another thing that comes up. Almost every guest talks about how you deal with those highs and lows and the inevitable kind of losing streaks. But part of the way you can deal with that is the way you bet. So you, you don't necessarily, um, you know, like say you like a 10 to one shot. Um, you don't, you, you can bet it to win, but there might be exact as where you could, you know, could run second and you could still make, turn a, a nice profit um, on the race. So there's ways you can reduce that variance is the way some of the guests talk about it, where, you know, you can shoot for the pin. With some of your money, but most of the money, you're just trying to hit the green kind of thing. And if you take that approach, it helps even out those ups and downs. Um, so I think that's really good advice. Um, but, you know, the other thing is when you evaluate your performance, on a, I think you need to evaluate in two ways how you're doing. You kind of reflect on, you know, after a race or after a day or a week, you can look back and say, you shouldn't really look back at the results because you may win or lose depending on, you know, what happens. You know, there's no control over that result. But you just want to make sure, are you making good decisions? Do you think you really identified value? Um, or did you bet a horse that you knew really was shorter price than it should have been? You know, that was not a good decision. But if, you're, if you think you're making good bets and finding value and you're just not getting results in a, uh, on a race, or a day, I, I think you just got to turn the page and keep going. But I also think you also need to look uh, longer term at your results, keep track of those over time. And if, you know, after six months or a year, you're, you're not doing well, you have to kind of reflect and say, well, you know, from a result standpoint, clearly I need to improve my process and my decision making and, and I need to make some changes. So Near term, I think you really focus on process and did you make good decisions. Long term, you got to focus on results and be honest with yourself about, you know, your performance. Yeah, it makes good sense. Bill, uh, you and Chris have worked together on some things, huh? And yeah, we do a webcast for horsetourneys.com. They have a, a series of online contests and, uh, uh, Chris was doing it with Scott for a bit and then Scott couldn't do it. And then McKay Smith, who owns horse tourneys asked if I was interested. And so we've done last couple of years, we've done a couple of tournaments, uh, two day webcast, uh, on YouTube. Uh, one was in the wintertime, one's in the springtime. Um, uh, so we, we've, uh, teamed up together. And so I get to throw things off of uh, Chris every now and then, and, uh, get to pick his uh, brain a little bit. Uh, about handicapping it's been it's been it worked out pretty well right chris yeah we're a good team i thought it's fun because we do a little bit of talk about you know handicapping the race but we try to do it from the perspective of the contest like if you're in first place you know joe in first place by five dollars you know what would be the right play for him um you know and we so we kind of bring in the, the strategy and contest game theory uh, in with the handicapping of the race. So it's pretty fun. I mean, I've enjoyed it. And, and Bill and I, um, you know, I think we, we do pretty well kind of working off each other. That's great. Okay. Well, Bill uh, is picking winners every race uh, at Emerald Downs. We go up to Bill for his selection. Myself, Bill, and John Lindley most days. And Chris will be joining us tomorrow for a few races, which is great. Actually, Saturday as uh, we get this podcast out. And speaking of podcasts, they're keeping Chris pretty busy. Once again, uh, Bet With the Best is Chris's new podcast with many of the top names in racing as guests. Uh, just bringing out some great info, features, techniques, handicapping styles on some of the top handicappers around. And also, it's uh, Sport of Kings with Scott Carson and a guest. So, uh, you're staying busy, man, and uh, it's great to have your input in a couple of different uh, outlets now, Chris. Thanks. Uh, yeah, and uh, again, really looking forward to seeing all three of you on Saturday and breaking it down a few races at Emerald Downs with you, um, Joe, yep. um, during the day. We'll do it. Okay, well, thanks so much for joining us here on our Horse Racing Northwest podcast. And uh, once again, listen to Chris. Uh the man knows what he's talking about. So thanks so much, Chris. We'll see you soon. Thanks, guys. 
Hey, Chris. Chris Larmy yeah. joining us on the Horse Racing Northwest podcast, and he'll be at Emerald Downs on Saturday. Okay, fellas, uh, just one other couple of news items here, notes. Uh, Breakfast at the Wire starts on July 23rd. That's a Sunday. July 23rd, Breakfast at the Wire, 8 to 10 a.m., hosted by Dean Mazuka on the track level there, uh, the apron just above the paddock at the paddock grill area. So come on out for that. Dino will have a lot of guests there. And Equine Art starts next Thursday as well. So Equine Art, uh, July 13th, uh, on track level at Emerald Downs, a great highlight of every summer. Okay, we'll come back with our third and final segment here on Horse Racing Northwest. It doesn't matter if you love craps, blackjack, machines, or dining on the finest Asian, American, and Salish cuisines. It doesn't matter what you do or where you're coming from. What you do is all at Muckleshoot. An easy drive from wherever you are. All roads lead to Muckleshoot. Muckleshoot. It's all Hollywood Harbour by four and a half lengths to Koala Beach. Private Jets running about on the outside, but down to the final 16th, and it's been all Hollywood Harbour. Hollywood Harbour's going to win without really having been asked, and Hollywood Harbour, well, a little bit more, but has won easily for Jose Zunino, Hollywood Harbour. Back on Horse Racing Northwest, we just heard audio of Hollywood Harbour, who still holds the North American record for five and one-half furlongs set at Emerald Downs. And uh, we're starting those two-year-old races, fellas. Harbor the Gold, the sire of Hollywood Harbor. Uh, Hollywood Harbor kicked it off for Har- Harbor the Gold. He had seven top juveniles at Emerald Downs over nine years. Yeah, Hollywood Harbor. He was, was the first one. Really, really fast for Jody Peets and Chris Densley and company. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's back when Harbor the Gold was just uh, cutting his teeth as a sire. He's still our leading sire this year here at Emerald Downs. Wow. And you know, Noosa Beach was the previous year a two-year-old, and he wasn't our top two-year-old. No, I know. And Gallant Son. Gallant Luke Son. Early, won three stakes, including the Gottstein. You know, I just saw Gallant Son had another nice winner back Good. at uh, Churchill Downs at 36-1 to 1 in an allowance race. He's, you know, he's been a pretty decent sire, actually, under the radar. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, we're going to do some my regular stuff here in this final segment. We've got a topic to talk about. Uh, unfortunately, Arlington Park is not racing this year, and the property, I, I, I just don't even want to look at any pictures, but I hear it looks a lot different. And Bill, Bill grew up in Chicago and knows Arlington well. Bill, uh, I don't know if you want to tell us the status of that property. It's not pretty, but uh, I know you've got a lot of memories there. Well, Churchill sold it to the Bears, uh, Chicago Bears in the NFL, for those of you who are maybe not a sports uh, aficionado, but uh, and they have begun the demolition process, and they're not doing it, you know, boom, if you will. They're going with the wrecking ball and kind of doing piece by piece. And, of course, they get this some pictures uh, sent uh, social media people will put it up and uh, show the whatever you want to call it the uh, progress if you will boy well uh vince you have any memories from arlington and we'll get back to bill on that my my biggest memory you know back before the breeders cup the arlington million was the first million uh, hence yeah. the name and uh, in 81, uh, the first one, it was right in the heyday of a horse called John Henry. And he went back there to run. And before the race, there was a horse called the Bart. And Pete Axthelm said, oh, this horse doesn't even belong in the race, you know, all that. And they run the race uh, that looks like the Bart beat off a fast-closing John Henry. Um, they actually cut to commercial before posting the photo they come back and say well actually john henry did win it by a dirty nose a tough beat for eddie d and uh the bart but that proved once again what a great racehorse john henry was on maybe not his greatest day he found a way somehow when it the only time he looked like he was ever going to win the race was that the actual photo came up and uh a great racehorse john henry and uh 
what a shame not to have a great place like Arlington oh. Park, one of the one of the prettiest race plants in the world. Uh, not running. I is, was amazed. Is a real heartbreaker. I think John Henry won that race twice. Didn't yes, yeah. 1984 yeah. as well. Yeah, and, and I he, met John Henry in '84 down there at santa anita you know and he wasn't he even that run. much of a looker as a racehorse uh of course old he, bob bowers that's right and uh humble backgrounds we all know he ran as a claimer at one time but for many years he held uh, the earnings record oh, gosh uh for a thoroughbred yeah. again this was before the breeders cup and you had all these big uh, lucrative races you have now yeah the first breeders cup of course was 84 and he had a great year in 84 but he was just a little bit worse for the wear by the time the breeders cup came up and didn't run yeah wasn't he uh i don't know if he ran in the meadowlands cup that year or not and it was it was close to whether he was he going to make nine he was in training yeah and then it, uh, he did not make the breeders cup as you say well i was at arlington for a couple days there in the early mid 90s and just was in awe of that facility you know just the beauty inside and it had plenty of public areas all kinds of diverse public areas and but the clubhouse was just absolutely tremendous i don't i think i got a tour through there i'm pretty sure and the turf club was fantastic but the regular clubhouse wow just all those marble walkways and stairways and sheesh douchesois rebuilt it after the fire there in the 80s bill yep it was 85 uh the miracle the miracle million. million i remember getting oh, up yeah. i remember getting a couple well lots of stuff if you're gonna bring up arlington i was at that uh, race live with my dad my late dad in 81 and and he was a huge john henry hmm. fan we flew out my dad used to work for continental airlines and so he could go anywhere at any time. As anyone who works for the airline industry, you can fly standby for, for free. And so we went out one weekend to San Anita uh, for the San Luis Rey. And this is right when John Henry was starting to get good. And my dad, we went out there specifically to watch John Henry. And he paid fifteen eighty to win in the San Luis Rey. And I had a $2 win bet on it. I know, I'd never forget it. And so when John Henry came to the million, it was just like, it was, you know, like, uh, like someone seeing their favorite band. It was for us, it was, it was a surreal experience. And I was out in the grandstand watching, uh, watching that race. And so, yeah, so, um, there was a statue outside the track. Yeah. And then finish. against all odds. And that news came out, uh, earlier this week that that was going to be, uh, donated to the, uh, the, the hall of fame museum. Um, so that will be, I was important. I thought that that, sure. uh, got, uh, to a, a rightful place. And I think that will at least, uh, um, be a place that, that can be appreciated. So, uh, yes. So Arlington, um, what else? Uh, well, I'll go in and I'll let you, because I know it's especially, you called your dad's, uh, memorial race. There, yeah. Right? My dad, you know, that, that's a place where I grew up basically, now, even as a, a kid, there really wasn't too many of my friends that were interested in horse racing. So it was kind of like a, a love that I had, you know, with my dad. And we would go out there on the weekends. And my dad, uh, you know, my dad went to plenty, lots of Kentucky Derbies and uh, plenty of Breeders' Cups over the years. And he just was a racing fan. He got into horse ownership a little bit at at the end uh, of his uh, going to Arlington over the years. Remember, I was there when he he only owned little parts of horses and all that. I think he owned like maybe parts of horses of like five over the years. But he had a, a couple of winners, one by the name of Taylor Madison. I was there that day when uh, she broke her maiden at uh, like 17 to one at Arlington. I still have the winner's circle photo for that. Um, just all the horses and just the, the memories, if you will. Uh, at Arlington, it's really just you know a shame because in you know where Arlington is at, it's northwest of the city, but uh, easy for people to get to. Uh, it's not like going downtown Chicago where it, it's just a royal pain that you know what getting downtown Chicago. It's Arlington it is it's rather easy to get to, and if they, I guess if the Bears ever uh, do build a stadium there, it will it will do all right because the property. Uh, that it sits on is just ginormous. It, it is a huge piece of property, and they're trying to you know put together some huge development deal and whatnot, as well as the stadium. 
Um, so yeah, my dad just loved Arlington. He would have been just crushed, um, it, you know, knowing yeah, what, what, what has happened to it. And yeah, I got to call my dad's, uh, race, um, Memorial race, which Arlington was kind enough to, to put on. And then, uh, John Dooley, I was up there for one final time and John, uh, I saw him at the, the local watering hole, uh, the night before. And he's like, Hey, you want to call a race? I'm like, all right, I guess so. And so I called, uh, called, I got to call another race at Arlington Labor Day weekend. Um, the, the year that they, uh, that they closed up shop. So that was my, my last, uh, time going to the races at Arlington. And then, uh, I also, after the race, after I left, I did spread my dad's ashes at Arlington hmm. because you also remember them, a Green Bay Packers fan. And my dad has had had season tickets since pre Vince Lombardi, and so I figured no better place to uh, put him to haunt the Bears for for eternity uh, than spread his ashes at, at Arlington. So um, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of uh, memories yeah, and, and whatnot. So uh, you know we were fortunate to grow up and attend the races in the seventies and eighties. And it was such a wonderful time for sport. I don't want to be the old guy yelling at clouds here, but uh, looking back, boy, how many superstars and great racing plants we had and kind of took them for granted. I feel sad that there's young kids right now growing up who won't go to experience that, who might have otherwise. Because it is just a tremendously exciting sport and uh, uh, entertainment with a great history. And it's sad to see it go away. Look at chart books in the late 60s all through the 70s into the 80s every freaking track had over 10,000 fans on Saturday and or Sunday racing 5 days a week yeah. a lot of these tracks you and know before and, casinos casinos yeah. casinos have uh, taken away a heck of a lot of uh, potential gamblers and horse players and and that's the cycle of life but uh and uh how about the O2 Breeders Cup at Arlington were you there for that? Oh, Zeri. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, I was. And that was. The, the betting scandal, the pick six. Ball pony. <laughs> so those guys. Single, 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 all, yeah, all, all. They did and, it all wrong. And a $12 pick six ticket they on get, Breeders' yeah, Cup day. They get away with it if if there isn't. You I, know what? I don't know if they would have. Bob Mazursky of the LA Times, him and Jack Disney had five going yeah. to the last and and they were they were saying nobody had there's no one no i said gonna, it after the third one dome going, driver won and paid yeah. 28 about the third leg i know he's gonna one ball pony had they said it's impossible no one no one has i don't care how big the ticket is yeah. and then they not only had it but how many six well, times no, or, okay so granted bill there's a possibility they could have got away with it if they had a two dollar ticket but they bought a twelve dollar ticket yeah, which means which they had nobody it six does. times they were the only one to hit it so they hit their own bet six times but even so, if you looked at the structure afterwards, um, red flag and saw after that red it was flag, single, 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 all, all. Yeah, nobody does that. You know, that's extremely odd. And then you try and find out who cashed it. And if you do some digging, I bet you they could have got it back to that Chris Harn for Auto Tote and who was in there wiping out the numbers on his computer and. So that was scary for horse racing, but uh, we got to the bottom of it. And yeah, that was the O2, the only Breeders' Cup at Arlington. Ball Pony winning that uh, 40, classic. 43 to 1 yeah. and won it pretty easily, right? He did, yeah. yeah. Okay, there's uh, some Arlington Park memories, Arlington International, Arlington, Arlington Park, whatever. Uh, uh, really sorry to see that place go. Sports shorts. Hey, it's All-Star Week coming up. Um and the All-Star game was huge for me as a kid. I was into, boy, reading those box scores every morning, you know, like you guys probably. And from 59, 1959, which I can't say I remember that All-Star game, but I certainly do the next year. 59 to 62, there were two All-Star games every year. And I just uh-huh. was reading recently, uh, I didn't remember the reason why, but it was to uh, help with the players' uh, pension fund. And yeah, then right. The owners and agreed to put more money in after that, so they went back to one All Star game. And it was originally founded by Chicago sports writer. Arch I Ward. do believe. Yeah, yeah. Arch Ward uh, was behind the first All Star game in '33, and uh, one I do remember pretty well from the '60s was when Johnny Callison hit a three run homer in the bottom of the ninth to win for the National League seven to four at Shea Stadium. I do remember that. Okay, one pretty I'll, well. I'll piggyback. Okay, I was. I guess I was. 
always more of some reason American League fan than an NL fan, and the you American had a rough go there in the seventies. Sure did, and uh, the 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 one that uh, kind of broke one streak, and then another one started right away. It was seventy one in Tiger Stadium when Ooh. Reggie Jackson yeah. homered off the light standard. You can still watch that one on YouTube, and I do occasionally. And who did he hit that one off of? Do you remember? Uh, I can wasn't that it. pitcher from the Reds? Was well, it, it might have been Jim Merritt? Was it? Hmm. I'm thinking he was a left-hander, wasn't he? He was, Reggie and I uh, won 20 games one year. I'd have to rewatch again, but Jackson, you know that swing of his. Oh my he, god! His old saying: "Swing hard in case you hit it. Swing up in case the wind's blowing out." And uh, Kurt Gowdy, who's kind of a stoic at the micro, even lost it there a little bit because that ball was just crushed. And uh, the American League won that one five to three. Okay. And I, I was just reading when, about the All-Star game that the National League had a streak there, late 60s to the 80s, 33-8-1. Yeah, well, and that 71 came right, ended one streak, and then began another yeah. one that and then again, Chicago comes into play in 83. Yep, and I was at that All-Star game with my my late dad. We sat up in the right field. We, we won the lottery for tickets, so we got tickets for face value. But we were up in the right field uh, corner in the upper deck at the old Comiskey Park. And Fred Lynn hit the uh, first uh, Grand Slam in hmm. All-Star history to right field. And I was, uh, at the time, I still, I wasn't, uh, I still kind of root for both both Chicago teams, uh, the Cubs and the White Sox, because I had we had great access to some great seats for the White Sox when I was a teenager. So kind of still put up with the White Sox a little bit. So I guess I was rooting for the American League a, a tiny bit while also kind of rooting for the Cubs that were in that uh, in that game. But uh, yeah, the, the the American League won thirteen to one, and uh, my old uh, my well, still um, my mom's old place, whatever. Um, downstairs, I I even put like a an ode to the All Star Game. I got the All Star ticket stub still there. Hmm. Um, I had all sorts of clippings about the All Star Game. Uh, it was it was such a big big thing back then. Uh, Floyd the Bannister game. and Lamar Hoyt for the White Sox that year. Yeah, with Salome Barrojas, uh, the reliever. Lamar Hoyt's probably on the All Star team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think Leon Wasn't Durham it? might for the Cubs might have been on there. Was but... that Lamar Hoyt for the White Sox? Yeah, he won twenty four, yeah, twenty five. Yeah. And, and Bannister, the... I grew up with him and his sister. Yeah, Rich Dotson was a pretty good pitcher for a while for the White Sox in that uh, that era as well. But uh, yeah, so '83 All Star Game is the only one that I've been able to attend. Uh, and speaking of baseball, Mariners, we were ready to put them uh, four feet under, if you will. Yeah. After losing two or three to the woeful uh, Washington uh, team, but uh, they came back and they won two or three against uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, who are going up guns a blazing and then went on the road to San Francisco and won two or three. Now they sit at 42 and 43, a game under 500. They've got four games before the all-star break against the uh, Houston Astros. And uh, they've got uh, some good pitching matches. One of the Astros uh, starters who uh, Javier is not going to pitch this weekend, at least as a starter. So therefore I think the Mariners have got a chance um, where they'll be legit, uh, they'll they might even be favored in, in, in at least two of these games, I think. Um, so we'll see how they do against the Astros, and then after that, uh, they come back with uh, well, the up they have the uh, All Star break, if you will, but then they start up with the the Tigers, and they they they're they're awful. So uh, you know, remember last year is when they uh, right after the All Star break is when they took off. So we'll see. August is the month that uh, that the the Mariners could really, if they're going to do something, the schedule is very, very advantageous. They got a lot of games against the Royals, the Athletics, the White Sox. You know, not very good teams, and but the, so that will be the time that they got to do something, and and you know, not just be hovering around five hundred, okay. but but right going now. five over five hundred, if you will. It's it's uh, July sixth right now, Bill. Yes, what's their Final 42 and 43. 42 and 43. What's, what's right Bill will be happy if they go 88 and 74. I know that. Yeah, we sure. <laughs> that was the over under total at the beginning of the year. Can they do it? I don't know. That's that's okay. a high high number. I don't I don't think so, but 
Uh, every 90, in, 90 gets you into the playoffs almost for they, sure. Yeah, with three wild cards. They just gotta they gotta stay healthy and, and guys like Julio. You know, they even though it's Mike Ford they brought up from he's uh, Tacomas, he's hitting a cover off the baseball and does it for power. Uh, he's been a nice addition to uh, you know. We were talking before he was brought up. They they were short a couple bats. At least they got one of those bats in the lineup if if he can keep it up. Boy, they keep bringing up these young pitchers who can throw though. And you know, even last night they lose two nothing, and uh, pitching kept them in the game. Yeah, the they end. were not supposed to really do much, and they made it a game and um, just couldn't get the bats going. Speaking of pitching, yes, Joe, we were right about it was a left or no. It was Doc Ellis. Oh, was oh, Doc Ellis? Star game. Okay. Yeah. Very famous pitcher back then for a lot of reasons with the Pittsburgh Pirates, right-hander. It was a <laughs> room service fastball. And uh, I just watched it again and it, and it hit the light standard yeah. up on the right field roof. Uh, Reggie had some serious power. Was there estimation? It was, I heard 600 feet or something. No, I don't think it was that far, uh, but, but, the they interviewed a fan who was sitting and said the ball was still going up when it hit yeah. the light standard. So it was a, a serious, serious home run. Yeah. TV didn't really capture it that great. You know, I mean, because no, it was and ready for a hit like that. It's kind of interesting. A lot of the camera angles back then were from behind the plate. And of course, now it's the center field you're watching from behind the pitcher. Well, I think the they had that, but then it left, and then it was hard to follow. They just the yeah. camera showed the light standard, but you couldn't see the ball really. You couldn't, as I no. remember. Yeah, and the lighting wasn't as good back then either in the, in the ballparks. The, you know the candle power they have now. But anyhow, Doc Ellis, yeah. who was a pretty good pitcher for uh, once, threw a no hitter where he walked eight men. Damn. With the Pittsburgh Pirates. And then later claimed he was record right there. Yeah, and then later claimed he was on acid, LSD, the night he did it. So that's that's one of the sports illustrators. They had a whole 30 for 30 on it, whether it's true or not. But he was a, he was a storyteller. Okay, there's some sports shorts. Uh, selections. Uh, Bill, what do you see on Friday? And uh, I, Bill, you came through with Orxy last week. He got bet down, but uh, he was an impressive winner. Neptali Ortiz for... Uh, Medina, I think. Luciano yeah. Medina, Gabriel. Yeah. I'll yeah. defer to Saturday, the okay. eighth race, uh, condition $3,500 claiming, going six furlongs. Uh, horse uh, that will be a bit of a price is the eight horse tap it at midnight. I think Vince made him 12 to one the line. Bumped at the start. And what what I like to watch is, you know, sometimes jockeys will, will wrap up a little bit. And uh, that's what, what happened on July 1st. Never really asked for his best. He likes to come from behind. I also thought he ran a credible race off the shelf, a uh, little bit of a layoff on June the 10th, where he finished behind Dark and Dandy, who was uh, well-meant that day for George Rosales. Uh, Tappet at midnight likes to come from off the pace, so always has to be a little bit dependent on early pace. But Gold Rush Candy does a lot, uh, among others. Uh, Manal about the money's making a big drop-down in claiming price for Vince Gibson. And so there, there's enough speed in here to set it up. And we're going six and not five and a half. So tap it at midnight, a horse to use, uh, and some exotics in the eighth race, number eight on Saturday. Okay. Friday, I'm going to come back with Don't Forget the Sugar in the fourth race, who she just won going a mile. But, you know, her whole resume is pretty darn good. I see she's 7-2 to morning line. Mm -hmm. Um, And she made that big late run to catch La Papas in that mile race. That horse is back in this weekend, too. Yeah, that horse looks tough back. But don't forget the sugar, just uh, really a lot of fine efforts. And even though she's going route to sprint, um, you know, this is a non-winners of three. She just took care of her non-winners of two. Alex Cruz for Candy Kreiderman from the one hole. Uh, figures to be coming from a little bit off the pace. Uh, I'm going to stay right there. But don't forget the sugar before I analyze it too much. All right. And uh, as Vince said, just a tremendous card on Sunday. Wow. Uh, the two stakes for two-year-olds. And then you mentioned three good, or four other. Really a solid. good older horse sprint for for males, allowance optional claimer, and a, and a nice uh, sprint for the older fillies and mares too. Just maybe a little cut below stake quality on both of those. Or we do have stakes runners in both of those. So really good card top to bottom. Okay. And it's a uh, 
Um, it's one of them weekends for families, family fun weekend. That's what I was looking for. Kids race. Okay, uh, we did have uh, a few answers. You know what? I don't have those in front of me from last week's trivia question. The question was, name a parent-sibling-trainer combo who've both been a single-season leading stakes trainer. And uh, one of them seems kind of obvious, probably. Blaine and Richard, right? That's not a correct answer. Oh. Okay. Richard was I fell not, right into your trap. <laughs> Richard was not a leading stakes trainer, but Jim Howard Penny and Belvoir Kay Cooper. And, okay, Howard Belvoir and Van? No. Um, so one is Jim Penny and Kay Cooper. Okay. Kay was leader, tied for the lead a couple of years ago with all those good two-year-olds she had. Uh, Dave Forster and Grant Forster. Very good. Yeah, yep, I would not have gotten that. Dave. And Grant, we're hoping to see for the mile, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, speaking of, uh, I told you this, I believe uh, Five Star General is running at Indiana in, in uh, the John Schuster, uh, uh, the Michael Schaefer Memorial. On the undercard. On the undercard on Indiana Derby uh, Day. It's during the day out, out east. Yeah, on Saturday. So that spaces nicely into the mile, right? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so we'll keep, uh, keep our tabs on uh, what Five Star General did over Definitely. this weekend. Yeah, we had Top Harbor. We talked about uh, he won the Oak Tree Sprint. Not sure if they're coming for the mile, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it'd be a, a good spacing and a good spot for him. So uh, I'm going to get back in touch with you who submitted the right answer, if you did. All right, this week's trivia question said your answers to trivia at emeralddowns.com. This is a crazy question out from way out there, but they like the tough ones, so... Name the sire who had three consecutive races won at Emerald Downs on a single day. Single day of racing. Three consecutive races, the same sire won it. And the one I have is quite a few years ago, but it did happen here at Emerald Downs. So I've seen two a bunch of times. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Two a lot. I think Demon Warlock did it once. He did. Yeah. And, and three total on the card, maybe? And yeah. No, they had, it, it might have had, well, he had a trifecta. In one race. That's one, right. First, second, and third, Demon Warlock. Remember that. Okay. Three consecutive races won on a single day by one sire. That's our trivia question. Come on up with the answer, and you'll get even more than the regular. You'll get a hat and a shirt and something else if you come up with that one. All right. Thanks for listening, and uh, hope to see you at the races. Really do. On Horse Racing Northwest.